It's Tuesday, April 20th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Los Angeles could become the biggest U.S. city to start a guaranteed income program. L.A. Mayor Eric Garcetti will be asking the city council to set aside $24 million for a program that would pay out $1,000 in monthly payments to 2,000 low-income families. There is some data from similar programs that show it does help beneficiaries, but it doesn't fare well in overall public polling. Chris Palmieri, L.A. Bureau Chief at Bloomberg News, joins us to discuss the new plan. Next, vaccination rates are going up and people are ready to get out there and start shopping again. But how will consumer spending change? With the increased use of delivery apps and curbside pickup, grocery shopping might see the most sustained changes. Younger shoppers will also be a big force in apparel spending. Melissa Repko, retail reporter at CNBC, joins us for more. Finally, it seems that the fight to unionize at an Amazon warehouse in Bessemer, Alabama may not be over yet. The retail, wholesale, and department store union filed objections alleging that Amazon illegally interfered with the votes. This comes after employees there overwhelmingly voted against forming a union. Annie Palmer, technology reporter at CNBC, joins us for what's next and what could be a lengthy legal challenge. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. He said the data in Stockton showed otherwise. People were able to say get a you know a babysitter or daycare for a kid so that they could go out and do job interviews or go to school and and in some fashion you know lift themselves up income wise. Joining us now is Chris Palmieri, Los Angeles bureau chief at Bloomberg News. Thanks for joining us, Chris. Thank you for having me. There's been a lot of conversation about universal basic income. There's already been a handful of cities uh, across the country that have tried their hand at this. But in California, most notably, Stockton, California, tried this out. We have some data on how that worked out. But now we're hearing uh, some news out of Los Angeles. L.A. Mayor Eric Garcetti is proposing a guaranteed income program for poor residents. This would make them the largest U.S. city to test this type of policy So he's going to be asking the city council to set aside $24 million to send out 1,000 monthly payments to about 2,000 low-income families. So, Chris, tell us a little bit more about this plan and what we're hearing. Yeah, so he's proposed paying people $1,000 a month. It's specifically people living in poverty, and they have to have at least one kid in the household. And because it's 2,000 people, it's now the largest of these trials in the country. It's only a one-year program. California in particular really seems to be taking a lead in this. You mentioned Stockton, which is two years into a program, a much smaller group of people. But we've now seen proposals coming out of uh, San Francisco and Oakland. And Compton just officially um, has started a program last week with uh, also about 600 folks receiving money. So it's a national phenomenon, though. It's St. Paul, Minnesota is doing it. Chelsea, Massachusetts. It's still all very much in the pilot phase, though. I do want to get into some details of those other plans. But first, you know, one of the big questions, costs. How do we pay for all of this stuff? I saw somewhere in the article, maybe they might use some stimulus funds, this uh, coronavirus stimulus funds to pay for some of this. How is that going to work? It's still sort of a theory, and these are mostly trials. Much of the money is coming in these various cities 
from philanthropic organizations. There's a group called uh, Mayors for Guaranteed Income, which former Stockton Mayor Michael Tubbs founded last year. Eric Garcetti here in L.A. is the co-chair of that. And they've got money, for example, $18 million from Jack Dorsey, the founder of Twitter. And that's both to advocate for this policy and also to seed some of these programs. Los Angeles is taking a little bit of a different take. It's going to be the mayor's asking for general fund money, although the city's receiving about $1.3 billion from uh, the last uh, big stimulus bill. And so uh, some of those funds could indeed be used to pay for this. Some of those other programs that you mentioned in California, Compton and Oakland, obviously they have their setups going. But in San Francisco, there was a weird one about making $1,000 payments to artists, 130 artists. This would be a six-month period that they would begin next month. So that was kind of a, a weird twist to this. I understand the whole thing about helping people under the poverty line families, but artists was a weird one to pop up. They noted it was really the first one of its kind to specifically target artists. You know, and presumably, you know, they won't be giving it to uh, you know <laughs> some very successful artists. Uh, right. These are all trial balloons in a way. There's some data coming out of uh, the Stockton test, but there's nothing really definitive. It's still a tough sell nationally. Mayor Garcetti told me that, you know, he didn't see this ultimately being funded by cities alone. He thought there would have to be a state and national component to it if it takes off to any great degree. And polling, Pew Research did a study last year. Majority of Americans are not interested in this, at least from the federal funding concept. And, uh, you know, it skews along party lines. Republicans very opposed, on right. 80% almost. And Democrats um, not as stridently opposed. <laughs> but um, <laughs> No, you're right. I mean, it's a tough sell on a lot of things. I think when... Uh, you know, families that merit it and need it. I, I guess you know, people might be more willing, but artists in San Francisco, I mean, you know, where is the severe need there is, you know, would be a question I would have there. So let's talk about Stockton. We do have some details from their trial program. They did say that uh, they were getting $500 a month for two years, these 125 families in that program. So they did say that people were less anxious and depressed, not having such a financial concern, I guess. And the people that were recipients of this also obtained full-time employment at better rates than people were not that were not in this program. We still haven't seen all of the data coming out of that. I did ask Mayor Garcetti about it. You know, he said, you know, one of the common complaints about this is that people will just buy bigger TV sets and other not important spending. He said the data in Stockton showed otherwise. People were able to say get a you know a babysitter or daycare for a kid so that they could go out and do job interviews or go to school and, and in some fashion, you know, lift themselves up income-wise. That it, Indeed, even though these folks were poor, that they were good stewards of their money, but they are just caught in this trap of poverty. Chris Palmieri, Los Angeles Bureau Chief at Bloomberg News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. More of us are also trusting other shoppers to pick out our produce and our meat. And that convenience factor may really have a, a huge impact long term on grocers who traditionally didn't have a lot of online shoppers. Joining us now is Melissa Repko, retail reporter at CNBC. Thanks for joining us, Melissa. Thanks for having me. As more people get vaccinated, a lot of companies and businesses are looking forward to how consumer spending will look like next. There's been a lot of changes that happened throughout the pandemic. Some of those things will stick. You know, the rise of online shopping has uh, really 
made a difference for a lot of companies. So grocers, you know, might see a big, dramatic and long lasting shift in that sense. Uh, you know, this curbside pickup, all that stuff. And then young consumers, you know, they're going to be driving a lot of this post-pandemic purchases as they're the most willing to get out there, start buying and interacting with more people. So, Melissa, tell us a little bit about how consumer spending is going to change once uh, everybody starts getting back out there again. To be fair, the jury is still out. It's still early days, and we're just starting to see kind of the indicators of what people's mindset is. But I have looked a lot at different reports and surveys by consultants, which pretty much every company is parsing through to try to get a better sense of what to anticipate in the months ahead. And one of the big themes that jumped out at me is that grocery behavior has really shifted. You mentioned online shopping has gotten bigger during this time, but more of us are also trusting other shoppers to pick out our produce and our meat. And that convenience factor may really have a a huge impact long-term on grocers who traditionally didn't have a lot of online shoppers relying on them. The other thing that's really changed is that people are living differently. So more people are working remotely and plan to continue to do that, at least on some level going forward. So that may mean they're eating more breakfasts and lunches at their homes in their kitchens versus having them in the cafeteria with coworkers. We also talked about, uh, I mentioned a little bit about uh, young shoppers, uh, you know, Generation Z. They're really ready to get out there and they're going to be big drivers of purchases. Teens and 20-somethings are really the ones that are starting to buy kind of post-pandemic purchases. Think things like clothes, and I'm talking about non-workout clothes for once, new shoes, and, and also buying handbags, which is something that traditionally people haven't needed as much. Those younger consumers also seem to be more likely to have the mindset of getting back out to the movies, out to malls. And so they may really be the first wave of consumers that companies see return. And may also be more willing to spend money out at the restaurants, not just outdoor restaurants, but also indoor restaurants. So they're kind of leading the way with some of that spending. Contactless modes of shopping and dining are still going to remain popular also after the virus fades. Cleanliness, all of these things that companies have really tried hard to work on, those things are going to stick around for some time. And some companies have already spoken about how it's influencing how they think of their stores. So Target, for example, which continues to open more stores every year, they said they're going to factor spaciousness into their future design. So having more room for people to spread out because we've all become more used to social distancing and and may not want to go back to being crammed into a line close together. So that's an example of how it may even shape things like architecture. And kind of in that vein, you know, a lot of retailers that are getting ready to come back have to start, uh, you know, it's kind of this uh, balance they need to achieve. They've been trending towards a lot of online shopping, having employees pick out those items, getting those ready for curbside pickup, all that stuff. And on the other side of things, some of the appearance of these stores have not been kept up so much because of kind of how hectic things have been. You mentioned in another article of yours how Walmart and Macy's have been accused of having unkempt stores because of all the ruckus that's going around. And they really need to to step that part of it up, the appearance, or they risk losing some more customers. Yes, I think there's a misconception that people are either online shoppers or in-person shoppers. And the reality is much more complicated. And that's why retailers need to think through how they present themselves not just on their website, but also in their stores. So often people's relationships with those brands are actually deeper, both online and in stores, and they do a variety of things. 
They maybe use curbside pickup some of the time. They shop in person some of the time. And it's more of a blend. So a lot of the time when people shop for groceries, they're actually going into the store sometimes and they're relying on those online shopping services other times. It's not an either or. And that's why this relationship between their store and its appearance matters so much. But stores are juggling more balls in the air than they ever have. So that's why their stores are taking on all these new roles. They're storing a lot of those online purchases in the front of their store near the door so that you can run in as a customer and grab it and not spend a lot of time in the mall. So that's what's really challenging them is how much of their time should they be spending folding clothes and making the display look beautiful? And how much other time should they be spending making the online orders ready to go for consumers who do try these new online focused approaches? Some of the experts you spoke to, you know, a good storefront is one of your best salesmen. It's, it's so true, but it impacts business. Uh, you know, one of the other people that goes around and kind of does analysis of all this stuff, they downgraded Walmart stock because of these unkempt stores and how sloppy they looked in some cases. And, it, and it's, just not, it's not just Walmart, it's other stores too. Macy's was part of this, but it can impact their business and, and their kind of uh, credibility. And here's the other dilemma with that. So yes, R5 Capital, which is one of the analyst firms that covers Walmart, downgraded their stock because they were saying, hey, look, you're offering a better experience for online shoppers than you are for in-store shoppers based on what we've seen in stores. And the problem for that for businesses is it's more expensive to fulfill online orders a lot of the time because you're having an employee pick and pack that order, traditionally something that shoppers have done for themselves when they come to the store and grab it and even carry it home. So all those additional costs come with an online order. And if you keep pushing people to online because the store experience feels inferior, then it actually hurts your business. Melissa Repko, retail reporter at CNBC. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. I think that what we have seen is that Amazon left no stone unturned um, in trying to make people afraid to vote for the union. They told people that if the union came in, they might have to shut down the facility and everybody would lose their jobs. Joining us now is Annie Palmer, technology reporter at CNBC. Thanks for joining us, Annie. Thank you so much for having me. We'd been following this effort to unionize at this Amazon warehouse in Bessemer, Alabama. The vote there ended up failing overwhelmingly, really. So they will not be unionizing there. But the story continues. Now the retail, wholesale and department store union filed objections with the federal labor officials saying that Amazon illegally interfered with this union drive. And now this is going to really extend the story. There's going to be a hearing, all this stuff. So the fight there to unionize, not necessarily over, despite the votes not being there. So, Annie, tell us a little bit more about what we're seeing here. These objections that the union seeking to represent Amazon workers in Bessemer, the objections, they are almost two dozen different examples of Amazon's alleged illegal conduct throughout the election that were listed in these filings submitted over the weekend. And essentially, you know, what they touch on is a a whole range of activities, including complaints that Amazon legally threatened and monitored employees that were in support of the union, including claims that they 
fired a outspoken employee who supported the union and disciplined another. The names of the employees weren't mentioned in the actual complaints, but I'm sure that we will learn more details as the hearings are scheduled and that sort of thing. But beyond complaints of intimidation of employees, the union also lays out some complaints related to a a mailbox that was installed on site at the facility, claiming that for employees that this may have asserted that Amazon played a role in collecting and counting the ballots, you know, down to even more striking complaints that Amazon allegedly said that workers could lose access to key benefits and even their pay rates if the union was voted in and that if the union is voted in that they might force workers to go on strike. So it covers a lot of ground throughout these right. 23 objections, but we'll be waiting to see more details about what occurred specifically. It was a pretty lopsided defeat. I think they had uh, 1,798 workers opposed the unionization effort. Only 738 supported it. But there was a little bit over 500 ballots that were uncounted because it wouldn't have changed the outcome. So, I mean, it really seemed like the workers there didn't want to vote for it. Obviously, there's allegations that Amazon kind of overstepped their bounds in in trying to intimidate workers. But maybe if the vote was a little closer, it'd give a little more credence to these complaints. I mean, the outcome, you know, was pretty stark in terms of the, like you mentioned, the overwhelming votes rejecting the union. This election was also pretty unique in that it took place via mail-in ballot. Because of the pandemic, the NLRB is not holding union elections in an in-person basis because of the obvious coronavirus risks and things like that. So that meant that the union had to really kind of take a different strategy in terms of how they were interacting with workers at the facility, which meant that they couldn't do things like house calls, which are, you know, a critical component of generating support and and speaking with workers and things of that nature. So it did have some, you know, disadvantages in that respect from the beginning. But because the, the union had less face time with workers, it meant that for employees at this facility, when they were in these so-called captive audience meetings on a weekly basis leading up to when ballots were mailed out, you know, it meant that they had a lot of time to interface with Amazon managers and things of that nature in these meetings. And, you know, of course, Amazon had a pretty, uh, pretty much had the floor to make the case for why voting in a union wasn't the right move. And, you know, it made lots of different arguments to that effect and allowed workers to ask questions and things of that nature. So the mail-in format, it did kind of, I guess, complicate the process in a certain way. Leading up to the whole outcome of this, you know, there was a lot being made about how all eyes are in Bessemer, Alabama, and what's going to happen there. Because let's say the workers did want to unionize there, that this is going to start leading other drives in other warehouses across the country. My question is, what has this loss now done to some of that buzz? Has it died out? Have you heard anything about that? I don't think that this really has, I guess, put a damper on the overall labor movement that's really kind of um, the pace of, of interest around, I guess, workers' rights and workplace safety and all these different topics. You know, the interest in these things has really accelerated as a result of the coronavirus pandemic. And so I don't believe that the outcome in Alabama will necessarily squelch efforts that are going on elsewhere. And in fact, you know, Amazon employees even have told me that they are looking into potentially organizing their own facilities. So I don't think that the I mean, I think the outcome, you know, you can't can't deny that it represents a setback for 
the labor organizers that had hoped to secure a foothold at Amazon. But I don't think that they're looking at this loss as the end of organizing attempts at Amazon. Annie Palmer, technology reporter at CNBC. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Diver is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.